You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they're talked about by a black author. And you can listen if you are black or not black. That is okay. This week on the podcast, we are reading Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, which was published in 1968 before he was assassinated. The book is titled where do we go from here and then the subtitles chaos our community which is where the question mark is in the subtitle and i thought it should be in the higher higher up in the book like on the title or there should be a colon there um but let's be serious because this is this is a serious book and although it was written 53 years ago or published 53 years ago like most things that are super famous it resonates today which is actually the saddest part about this or maybe just the most prescient part about it right maybe it was just very prescient that dr king knew this was going to happen but all right so let's get into how did i come to the book the first way i came to the book was by listening to bomani jones who is a sportscaster and he but he talks a lot about black issues and he went to historically black colleges and his father was involved in the civil rights movement. And he was talking about how Martin Luther King Jr. had been whitewashed. And he mentioned a specific biography that had come out, I think it was in 2018, that did a good job of pointing out how Martin Luther King was much more radical and angry than he gets credit for being and how, uh, how, the, the modern image of him where he's upheld as like this kumbaya, let's all hold hands, let's all be together and get along. And anybody who's kicking up trouble is causing racial strife. And that's not Dr. King's message. He had a dream and all of this stuff. And Bomani Jones was pointing out how that wasn't, that that's distorting Dr. King's message. And after reading this book, and this is not the book that, uh, Bomani Jones was talking about, but after reading this book, it's very obvious that he was right. Half of the stuff that Dr. King does and says in this book would land him in serious trouble on, you know, Fox News. They they would have tons of talking talking points about how Dr. King is tearing the country apart. And it's been pointed out before that at the time of his death, he was, I think, voted like the least liked man in America. So the whitewashing of his image has been well documented, but uh, I'm going to document it here document it here once again and just kind of go through the stuff. So that, that was how I originally came to the book. But I downloaded this book a long time ago because another reason I, I wanted to read the book was it's Martin Luther King. And, you know, speaking of him being whitewashed, how often have you actually read something by Martin Luther King? When you grow up, you hear the I Have a Dream speech. And they talk about civil rights. Maybe you hear a little bit about Selma. Depending on where you grew up in the country, you might hear more about this stuff or less about this stuff. But by and large, you don't hear too much about this stuff. And almost never do you read something by Martin Luther King. And if you do, it's usually a letter from a Birmingham jail, uh, which is what I read. But long form, in his own words, this is what he's saying uh, when he's not under duress in, in a jail cell. 
um, is a really different kind of Martin Luther King. So, you know, reaching the age, getting past 30 and realizing I'd never read a book by Martin Luther King felt odd. So that was another reason I did it. And the third reason was I had recently read Stanley Crouch and he had this whole thing, you know, he became disillusioned with the civil rights movement when it started to veer towards black nationalism in 1968. Well, that's exactly when, obviously, Dr. King wrote this book or published this book. And he has the second chapter of this book is titled Black Power. So it talks a lot about that in the black power movement. I'm not going to say black nationalism anymore. That was Crouch's term. But the black power movement was something he felt he had to uh, address because it was splintering the civil rights movement with, uh, for instance, him and um, Stokely Carmichael, who they'd worked together. Not that they were at odds with each other, but they had reached, uh, to use his word, uh, loggerheads. So, which is a good word, which is a good word. So that's the kind of the background for why I got into the book. And then this week, we're going to talk about the first three chapters. And then uh, in two weeks, we'll finish up talking about the next three chapters. So the first three chapters are titled, Where Are We? Black Power. And then third tap. So let's, I'm sorry, that was poorly done. First chapter is titled, Where Are We? The second chapter is titled, Black Power. And the third chapter is titled, Racism and the White Backlash. So Where Are We? As you imagine, establishes the current political situation and the current political situation is 1968 and there have been riots and there's been anger on the white and the black side and so what Martin Luther King does is he kind of goes through and explains why these things have happened and he makes it clear that he thinks the watch riots were for instance so use the watch riots as the example because I believe that's the one he really focuses on he makes it clear that the Watts riots were unfortunate, but he also makes it clear that it was a warranted expression of rage. And he wants the reader to know that white backlash was not a result of the rage. So he was saying that the typical storyline has been that uh, the, the riots happened and then white people were outraged after the riots. And that's what and that's the white backlash. And he wanted to point out that it was a pre-existing condition. It had always been there. He talked about how when he was in Selma, when he was in Birmingham, when he was in Chicago doing work on the home contracts just the summer before, how it had always been there. So he, uh, Martin Luther King went to great lengths to point out that white backlash is nothing new and also great lengths to point out that if you want to stop riots, create an equal atmosphere. He writes at the end of this chapter, Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention. So I'm going to point this out a lot as I talk about this, but this is just the first example of something that would have upset the right-wing pundits today, right? So after the George Floyd riots this summer, had, had Martin Luther King been alive, and it's a tragedy that he's not, he would have said... If you want to stop these riots, guarantee social justice and progress. How do you think people would have reacted that, to that today? So for all of those people who invoke Martin Luther King as a person who would have, um, who would have called for unity in a time of uh, divisiveness, here's our first example. We'll keep going. He then sets the stage for why black folks are angry. And basically what he says is black folks are angry. And again... 
although Martin Luther King is a proponent of nonviolence, throughout this book, he establishes that, like, we ought to be angry. Like, we are <laughs> well within our rights and reason to be angry. It's just, I don't think we should go about it violently because I don't think it's morally right. And ultimately, like, I don't really think it's going to accomplish our goals. And I actually think his bigger thing is, well, maybe those are equal parts, you know, equally, equal parts, like morally, this is wrong and equal parts, like it's actually not going to accomplish the goal. So let's not do it. But so he lays the ground for why black people are angry. And he points out that Basically, uh, the white citizens had abandoned the movement because they felt like black people had enough. So to sum up this basic feeling here, you know, most of the civil rights movement had concentrated on the South. But what was going on in the North was also bad for black people, but in a different way than it had been in the South. So uh, Dr. King writes, Negroes felt cheated, especially in the North. While many whites felt that Negroes had gained so much, it was virtually impudent and greedy to ask for more so soon. You could, this seriously could just be talking about today. Uh, so he, he talks about that and then he talks about the idea of just in general, white people had been, you know, as allies, had been very happy to go along with um, the program until the program asked for like a different type of sacrifice. So when the program was about just taking these, use his term, the whips out of the hands of Southern sheriffs, that was good. But when the program starts asking for white Americans, uh, you know, in the North and other places to do some introspection into what their, what their problems are, now, now we have to, well, I got to pump the brakes there. Pump the brakes there, Dr. King. So he then goes on to talk about how true equality, what it would look like and how it would be accomplished and how much it would cost to actually achieve true equality because he doesn't talk about these things in the abstract see he he doesn't want he doesn't want people to think that he's saying like uh, equality is the absence of being beaten or being lynched or the absence of being hassled by police that's not equality dr king thinks equality is you know proper housing proper education life liberty and the pursuit of happiness that thing that we uh, guaranteed all of our citizens that's what dr king thinks thinks. So he talks about what true equality would look like, how it would be accomplished, how much it would cost. And he talks about how much white America would have to come to grips with the idea because they don't understand what equality is. And that's kind of his whole point when he's saying that uh, white people had felt like Negroes already had enough. They felt that they had had enough because they don't realize that when they had said, oh yeah, we want all men to be created equal. And then yeah, we want to go ahead and extend those rights to this group of people who we had taken it from. Dr. King says black people took them at their word. You want to extend those rights and you want to extend equality. White people, not realizing what they had meant by that, just thought, oh, well, we just figured if we stopped the lynching and stuff, that was good enough. But it's not. And as we go on throughout the book, Dr. King points out, too, that it's not just black people who needed this equality extended to them, but all poor people. And he actually calls for a rallying cry around all poor people, which is a big no-no nowadays. It's veering on socialism. He would have been skewered. Um, but so anyway, this, I thought all, all of this, <laughs> all of this idea, all of these ideas that center around the idea that um, this black lumpen proletariat is going to basically 
critique capitalism, right? They're going to teach white America what actually is equality, and they're going to force white America to actually give uh, equality to all of its citizens. This is right in line with what Cedric Robinson was talking about when we read Black Marxism a couple months ago. That was the idea. He was saying the black subaltern, or if you, know, you want to use the term lumpen proletariat, I'm going to use them interchangeably. You can argue with the semantics of that with yourself. But essentially, there is a black underclass, or there was a black underclass, it still is a black underclass, that critiques capitalism naturally and perhaps better than any organized proletariat could ever do. And it has done that. It, it did... It, the, the black underclass forced America to realize the democratic ideal, which is one of the only things I thought that Stanley Crouch had right. It is true that black people forced America to hold up its end of the bargain for, uh, for, uh, for what it had written in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. If you're going to say these things, all of these Enlightenment ideals, if you're going to put this into your Constitution... All right, you've got to do it for everybody in the country. Black Americans were the Americans who forced them to do this. Now, there was white ally, white allyship on the side of it, but none of that happens without black Americans. Later on, Dr. King, again, kind of echoing Robinson who came after him. So not echoing Robinson, I don't know, prefiguring Robinson. He says, the hard cold facts today indicate that the hope of the people of color in the world may well rest on the American Negro and his ability to reform the structure of racist imperialism from within and thereby turn the technology and wealth of the West to the task of liberating the world. And he, and he continues. Um, now, whether or not you agree with that or whether or not that has happened in the uh, intervening 40, 53 years is up for debate. But the fact of the matter is it's just kind of interesting that Robinson, you know, I'm sure was influenced by Dr. King. And Dr. King had these ideas that are very close to Marxist socialist ideas, although I don't know, I don't know if he ever jumped out and said him in those words. Uh, but we keep going. So, um, so that's what the first part is all about. This first chapter is all about just setting the scene, explaining what it would take to get to equality, and explaining why white America is upset, but also why they've always been upset, and explaining why Black America is upset and why Black America expects more because it is guaranteed more. By what's in the Constitution. And not just black America. All the poor people of America are guaranteed more by a country that was founded on these democratic ideals. One more thing, though, before we get out of this chapter is that uh, a lot of people. So I just want to reiterate this idea of Martin Luther King being a fighter and being a, a guy who was pressed and angry and upset about stuff. To Just to qu qu close out this chapter, you know, about uh, actual equality, what actual equality means. Martin Luther King wrote... But the absence of brutality and unregenerate evil is not the presence of justice. To stay murder is not the same thing as to ordain brotherhood. So more is expected. I read that quote and it made me think a lot of another guy who's a radical who definitely nobody, nobody on the right these days would quote. And his name was Malcolm X. And he said, if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, there's no progress. If you pull it all the way out, that's not progress. Progress is healing the wound that the blow made. So, there you go. That's Dr. King, the radical, as he always was. And so, yeah, a lot of this sounds very familiar today. The criticisms of uh, 
people already having enough, why are you still bellyaching about stuff? Sounds very like what we hear today. And some of it is not at all warranted, but like, you know, one of the things Dr. King talks about in here is about how the black middle class has kind of forgotten the lower class. And I think that's one of the thing that one of the things that gets lost today. You can point to any number of black people who are doing well in the country, and that's fine. I myself grew up middle class, and that's fine. But is what we're focusing on here is not me. We're focusing on all of the black folks who have been left behind and forgotten, as well as all of the poor people in America who have been left behind and forgotten. Right? That's the idea, and that's a lot of what Dr. King's talking about here. All right, on to Black Power, which is the second part of the book and the part I was most interested in because um, I wanted to see what Dr. King would say about it. And, you know, it's this is a truly fascinating chapter because he really goes further in explaining the concept behind Black Power. And he talks about it without just dismissing it out of hand, which is what I thought he might do because of, like, you know, reading Stanley Crouch and hearing other people use Dr. King as this kind of... Uh, you know, Gandhi almost venturing into like Buddha territory, you know, like he just never got angry. He was just a little, little, uh, black Buddha just sitting there, not angry and just happy and preaching racial harmony. But actually Dr. King had no problem with the concept that black people needed power. He had a problem with the slogan and he had a problem with the means that were used to achieve getting power. But he didn't think that the idea of power was a bad idea. He said black people needed power, and he said black power was necessary because of a failure of white power to create and govern an equal society. So that was one big thing from this chapter. Another big thing was the idea of masculinity and reclaiming black masculinity. That was a huge thing that he wrote about multiple different uh, multiple different times, and a lot of what he wrote in this section would get him in trouble. So I just want to go through some of these ideas that he wrote. All right, so one was... One must not overlook the positive value in calling the Negro to a new sense of manhood, to a deep feeling of racial pride, and to an audacious appreciation of his heritage. Okay. Uh, He also talks about how black has many negative synonyms and white does not in the dictionary. He also talks about how he went to a recital for his children's integrated school and that there weren't any black songs. And then they ended the show with singing Dixie. And then he also says in a different place about manhood, To offset this kind of cultural homicide, the Negro must rise up with an affirmation of his own Olympian manhood. Folks, all of this stuff would get ridiculed today. And I would not agree with that ridiculing, but I'm saying if you you said, like, uh, the dictionary's got too many negative uh, words that are synonyms for black folks, and I went to my school recital and they didn't have any black songs, and um, what was the other one? And, uh, you know, black manhood has been attacked by, uh, by, by the erasure of history. And we need to perhaps teach black history or teach the full history of America in school. These things are literally attacked on a daily basis by people who are saying this is divisiveness tearing the country apart. The same people who will look and then go, why can't you guys be more like Dr. King? He wanted racial harmony. So it's just kind of funny because, yeah, let me just go ahead and say it. Six, this is basically the 1619 Project, where this is somebody going through and saying, hey, um, let's not use the word black anymore to mean this negative thing, right? It's policing language. It's policing history, which I don't want to say policing history, actually. It's policing language. It's 
retelling history correctly, and it and it's placing language correctly, by the way, too. Okay, and it's also um, asking for diversity in schools. These are things that people are not happy about. This is now devolved into the culture wars. Fifty three years later, it's called the culture wars, and it was called that at the time too. But again, the whitewashing of Dr. King, where it's like Dr. King was all about you know racial harmony. Yeah, ideally, but. He didn't think that racial harmony was achieved by everybody just holding hands. He's like, I'm for racial harmony. First, I would like equality. I would like diversity. I would like history to be properly told. And I would like you to stop using black in any kind of derogatory way. And then we can have racial harmony, which is something that basically nobody ever brings up. Anyway, he continues to talk about black power. And uh, basically, he just thought it was ultimately going to be destructive. It, didn't, it couldn't implement a program and he didn't see how the armed aspect of it would work either morally, but also like if it comes down to armed revolution, kind of like it's just unrealistic. But he didn't dismiss it as unrealistic. He doesn't do any dismissive stuff in the book. He goes through and just points out like, look at what happened to Nat Turner. And look what happened to, I can't remember, he uses a, I can't remember another, what's that other slave's name? I can't remember right now. But he's like, look what happened to Nat Turner. It's not going to work. Kind of gives you the idea that like, King would have been down to ride, you know? It's like, hey, look, if we can make this work, like, let's let's ride. But, you know, we can't. We're not going to win this thing versus a highly motivated populace with more weapons than us. We're outnumbered, so let's not do that. Um, so ultimately, yeah, he just thought black power was morally wrong because of violence and then that the slogan would turn people off. But the concepts behind it, that wasn't what he was against. He, all right, but more examples of King being a socialist real quick. Uh, so he says about black power that one of its problems, one unfortunate thing, so not even a problem, just says one unfortunate thing is that it gives priority to race precisely at a time when the impact of automation and other forces have made the economic question fundamental for blacks and whites alike. In this context, a slogan, power for poor people, would be more appropriate than the slogan black power. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, get, you know, I would get him in trouble. Uh, and then later on in the next chapter, he says this stuff, but I just want to point it out now because I, I think this will be the end of me talking about uh, King as a socialist. He talks about how the Washington Post calculated how much money they, how much money it cost to kill one person in Vietnam. It's three hundred thirty thousand dollars in nineteen seventy. I have no idea how much money that is now. Way too much. Uh, it's pretty depressing that it was that much then. I, I assume it's also really high now. I mean, I think drone strikes are probably still expensive. I, I have no idea. But the fact that we're so conditioned for the forever wars that America's been fighting, that we don't even know things like that necessarily. There's also just so many numbers now. We just have a vague idea that this thing is wrong. But they definitely knew it was wrong then. I don't know what King would think of like 20-year wars that are costing trillions of dollars and and then thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of foreign lives. Uh, I don't know what he would think of that. I, I assume he would not be happy. And then uh, just one more King socialism quote is, uh, all too many of, I should stop saying socialism as much as just Marxism or whichever version of, I don't like the economic disparity in this country and it's because of the capitalist system. Whichever version of that you would like to go with, whether it's socialist, communist or Marxist, more specifically, whichever one of those ideologies works for you, fine. Here's another King quote along those lines. All too many of those who live in affluent America ignore those who exist in poor America. In doing so, the affluent Americans will eventually have to face the poor Americans. So there you go. The haves versus the have-nots. You know who else said that? Malcolm X. 
Martin Luther King's starting to sound a little bit radical, folks. All right. So then the last chapter is called Racism and the White Backlash. We're at 24 minutes. So I've been talking a lot here. Basic premise here is that waiting will get nothing accomplished. He talks about how people say like, oh, uh, look at what you're doing. You're upsetting people and then they're getting angry. And that's why we have a white backlash. And he makes a great analogy of about how uh, if you go to the doctor and the doctor says like, hey, you got cancer. Nobody says, well, oh, my God, what are you doing? You pointed out I have cancer. And he's <laughs> he's saying by going into these parts of the country, all we're doing is pointing out that there is racism. And because there's racism there, we got to root it out. And you're telling me that it's white backlash. And I'm telling you I'm diagnosing the problem. So that was a great little Martin Luther King thing. Uh, and then he goes through and talks about how George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, John Quincy Adams, John Calhoun, and Abraham Lincoln were great men. But, and then he goes through and talks about why they weren't great men. That ain't, that wouldn't fly today. People wouldn't love that, right? When all those statues were getting pulled down, people were like, oh my God, how could you do this? And uh, maybe there was, I think, a George Washington statue pulled down in Baltimore or whatever. But mostly it was like statues being pulled down of Confederate generals. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't think that would be too popular today. And just to sum up this idea that, you know, King and civil rights activists and others are the reason white backlash exists uh, King says, to live with the pretense that racism is a doctrine of very few is to disarm us in fighting it frontally as scientifically unsound, morally repugnant, and socially destructive. So his point is, people are not angry all of the sudden because of racism. People are, or excuse me, people are not angry all of a sudden because we've been pointing out racism. People are racist and they're angry because they're racist and that racism was there before and telling us to not point it out in all of the country, all the places that it is, and just pointed out in these really obvious places, is harmful. It's a harmful doctrine, and we can't do it. Um, so that was his idea, and this is not an unpopular idea today. And a lot of people have problems with it. They don't want to do the introspective thing and think about how they might be contributing to a racist system, which I'll talk about more at the end. Okay, um, so. Yeah, and he also goes through and talks a lot about how basically we can't wait. He had written a book in 1964 called Why We Can't Wait, also another famous book of his, and how he, he talks about President Johnson saying that if we uh, if we do a bunch of action now, the great society I do, saying if we do a bunch of action now, the hopes of the 20th century will become the realities of the 21st century. And Dr. King says, on this timetable, many Negroes not yet born and virtually all now alive will not experience equality. So he wasn't for the idea of waiting. He wasn't for the idea of being patient. He didn't think that would help. He was for the idea of getting action, getting something done now. And he points out that the only way anything ever happened in America that was good for black folks was because black folks pressed it into happening. He didn't believe that we should just stand idly by and be happy with what we got and live in racial harmony and hold hands and sing kumbaya. That's not who he was. And he also goes through and talks about, of all the things they got passed, talks about 1954 Brown versus the Board of Education, the 1968 Civil Rights Bill, the 1964 Civil Rights Bill, uh, the, uh, the, 15th, <laughs> the 15th Amendment in 1870, that wasn't him, and then the 1965 Voting Rights Law. He talks about all these things and how they took so long to implement 
Uh, a good, just a personal example, 1954 Brown versus the Board of Education desegregated schools. My father went to a segregated school until 1968, so until this, this year. So he talks about the frustration of not just people who want to like branch off me in the Black Power Movement, him, his frustration, the frustration of fighting and being in jail and going in marches and working tirelessly and then you get a law passed or you get an act passed or whatever, and then it doesn't even get implemented. And then people want to talk about white backlash. So Dr. King wasn't having it. Um, and he wasn't that whitewashed Buddha. Okay, we're almost at 30 minutes. So just a few quick thoughts. First of all, I've loved the first half of this book. As you can tell, there's a ton in it. And it's super valuable reading for just our time now. I thought it was better than so I was saying that a lot of people now don't want to do the work that Dr. King was saying that we needed to do 53 years ago. I thought it was better than half of the anti-racist books you could possibly get your hand on. And when I say half of them, I mean 99.9% of them. And that's no insult to the people writing those books. For instance, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, I thought, wrote a great book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. I really thought it was wonderful. Um, at the same time, this is even better. And... I would say if Kendi's book was that good, uh, and this is better, then I don't know why you would start anywhere else than with those two. And I certainly wouldn't read, I can't think of that lady's name, that white lady who's talking about how white fragility is uh, harmful or whatever, whatever she's talking about. I wouldn't read something like that. Um, I'd be much more interested in reading something like this. And also any book that focuses more on, not, not that like the problems of the middle class aren't real problems, but I, I would always say that the people at the lowest rungs of society are the most vulnerable. And those are the people that should get the most focus. So any book that focuses more on the people at the, on the lowest strata of society is always the book you should go with. And that's where Dr. King's head was at. So 53 years on, he's still the man, right? He's still the man. One note and on a lighter note here is that although I love Dr. King, Got a lot of analogies. Felt like being in church again. It's been a while for me. Will continue to be a while. But th that doctor, or excuse me, that cancer analogy for um, for racism is a great analogy. It's been used before, but specifically the way he used it about going into neighborhoods and pointing out the cancer. I just thought it was really well done, really well crafted. Some of the other analogies are, you know, a little funnier. They're not bad or anything, but they're just a little bit funnier. So I, I highlighted two in particular. I'll close with those. Uh, one was a when he's talking about how Lincoln was a good man, but he says a civil war raged within Lincoln's own soul. A tension between the Doctor Jekyll of freedom and the Mister Hyde of slavery. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that one. I don't know about that one. He's got so many analogies that he just kind of like, you know, he's probably just const He was. He was probably God rest his soul. He was probably just sitting there constantly jotting down like, oh, that's a good one. I should use that. You know, he's got to do sermons every Sunday, I think. I, I thought I think he preached every Sunday. I don't know. But also doing speeches, writing books, doing speeches, writing books, doing sermons. He's just so many analogies. Um, the other one I thought was good was he, talk, he tells a story about how he took a flight to Europe. And on the flight back, the the return flight was like two or four hours longer or something. And he asked the pilot and the pilot explained to him. And then he 
hops out of this anecdote back into his narrative and he says, In any social revolution, there are times when the tailwinds of triumph and fulfillment favor us, and other times when the strong headwinds of disappointment and setbacks beat against us relentlessly. Uh, It was just funny because he took a long time to set it up. But that's what makes a great orator, right? Like, he... He sets up his spe- he sets up his um, analogies with good anecdotes sometimes, and sometimes he just drops an analogy on you like Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. But overall, this is a great book to read the first three chapters of. Haven't even finished it yet. It's not long. He packs. I don't. I mean, it, it's Doctor King, right? What can you say about Doctor King that's new? Nothing. Everybody knows about Doctor King. But if you if you want to actually read a book. By Dr. Martin Luther King, which, if you're like me, you had never done. This is a great one to start with. He really breaks it down. You really get into the radical ideas of Dr. Martin Luther King, which, by the way, I, I don't think are radical. But if you got on network television and said these ideas nowadays, they would be denounced as radical by the other side. And even some people within your own movement would denounce these ideas as radical. So, um yeah, I just really appreciated that part of it and really enjoyed this first half of the book. All right, second half of the book in two weeks. Very exciting. Going to finish this thing up. Probably going to be just as long. When you get a book like this, it's hard to talk about it in a short amount of time. In the meantime, this same week, this very week, there's a second episode out of uh, my review of Wole Soinka's newest novel, chronicles of the happiest people on earth so check that out it's also in the same feed and yeah i'll see you in two weeks until then stay safe stay black and keep reading